We are today in Galatians. I know that's a, kind of a surprise for most of you, but, uh, well, maybe not. We've been in Galatians for a few months now, but uh, we're going to be in transitioning to chapter 4 today. But because this is Cornerstone Bible Church, we're going to review. That's what we do. We're not going to look at the whole book. Doug, Doug uh, took a quick look at that last week. But I uh, just want to take a very quick look at chapter 3, in which we saw the very clear defense of the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone that Paul presents. We learned how our justification and salvation is the same justification and salvation that Abraham had and has. That same salvation makes all of us, regardless of our ethnicity, spiritual children of Abraham. We saw the limitations of the law a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, last week Doug took us through verses 23 through 29 of chapter 3, where we learned the purpose or the intent of the law in verse 24 and our interactions with it. The law was provided before the coming of Messiah in order to point to the need for a Messiah. We also saw the limitations of the law, as we said. Nobody can keep the law, can obey the law, or be saved by the law. The law does not give life. Only faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ does that. We also saw the spiritual unity and equality we have in Christ, in verse 28, that uh, the cultural, economic, societal, ethnic, and gender distinctions that were so important at that time in that part of the world, as well as in our time in all parts of the world, mean exactly nothing with respect to salvation. Finally, we learned that belonging to Christ, being justified by faith in Him, as we said, makes us part of Abraham's extended spiritual family. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at Galatians chapter 4, as I said, Galatians 4 verses 1 through 11. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we'll take a look at those. I'll be reading out of the uh, New American Standard. Galatians 4 and verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were, who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 8, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him, by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you 
that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for giving us exactly what you want us to know about yourself, about our salvation, about your son Jesus Christ who made our salvation possible. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and call you Abba, Father. Thank you that you have known us and we can know you. We thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray your blessing now upon uh, this time of teaching. I pray your blessing upon each one here. I pray your blessing upon those in the other classes, in the younger classes, uh, in the nursery, wherever they may be, Lord, that we pray above all that your word would be taught and your and you would be glorified through our time this hour. We give you the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this passage, uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 11, addresses the believer's sonship in Christ. Now, the topic actually starts back in verse 26. So it starts back at the beginning of the book, obviously, but uh, it really uh, comes to a head there at, in verse 26 of chapter 3. Uh, where it says, uh, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But uh, we're going to pick up where our uh, non-inspired chapter divisions direct us in verse 1 of chapter 4. So looking at verse 1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Now the word for child that's used in this verse in the Greek is napios. It's trans- translated elsewhere as infant, babe, or minor. Uh, the word literally means non-speaking. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 13 and 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child. Uh, it conveys the idea of immaturity and undeveloped mental awareness and readiness to assume responsibilities of an adult. Same word is used in Ephesians 4.14. We are no longer to be children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. The child, as Paul uses the word here in Galatians, isn't ready to handle hard things or make critical decisions. In fact, as our verse says, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Now, obviously, an heir to a vast fortune or any fortune might not be treated like a slave, uh, but an underage heir has absolutely zero control of whatever he might own. He can't make decisions on how to use his assets, the assets that are supposedly his. He can't make decisions on even how he spends his own time. Every aspect of his life is controlled by somebody else. Uh, now, the word Doug referenced last week was paideia, or Paella, if you're hungry for Spanish rice. <laughs> but uh, paideia is also used for little children, but can also be used for older children. Um, whereas nepios, is the word here, is almost exclusively used for infants and babes. It really points to the helplessness of the individual, especially when we consider our helplessness to release ourselves from the custody of the law, whether it be a prison or a pedagogue. And I also uh, want to express my thanks to Doug for his excellent explanation 
and description of the coming of age ceremony that we see here in verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. The word guardians here is translated tutors in the King James. Uh, This guardian role is not the same necessarily as the pedagogue we learned about last week. Remember, that's the slave uh, who would have day-to-day virtual dictatorial control of the underage heir, the child. The Greek word used here for guardian is epitropos. The usual connotation for this is a household controller, uh, sort of a, a middle manager. This individual would have responsibility for and control of both the pedagogue and the child. Uh, he would probably have more influence over the academic curriculum of the child, of the student, while the pedagogue would have authority over the behavior of the child. So you've got the pedagogue right there, day-to-day control, the epitropos, the, the guardian uh, who's in, uh, in charge of the pedagogue, and then uh, we have the manager. The manager here is uh, use, called governors in King James and stewards in the New King James. This is more of a role of a, a business manager uh, in charge of finances or property until the heir comes of age. The heir, uh, before he comes of age, is, so to speak, at the mercy of others, even though he might be in line for a huge inheritance. He has no control over it until the date set, the time appointed by the father. The father, in this case, is the ultimate decision maker regarding the disposition of the estate, the property to be passed along. In our own time, it's customary for those with substantial estates, a lot of holdings, to set up a trust for their children with funds or property set aside until the children reach a certain age. This might look different for different families. Some wouldn't give control of that trust till the age of like 21, maybe 25, maybe even older, depending on situation, uh, depending on the decision of the father. But uh, when the heir reaches the age set, all the previous legal limitations are lifted, and that child, that heir, obtains full access to the inheritance, whether it be property, money, titles, uh, or whatever else might be in the estate. The point of all of this is, as true believers, having been justified through faith, we are heirs of God. We already have full access to the blessings of salvation. Of course, some of those blessings, we have to realize, like the glorified body, are not going to be realized, the side of glory, but their certainty is guaranteed according to the promises of God. Verse 3 in our passage, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This verse reminds us that before we were saved, our status was no different than that of these children. We were similar to slaves. We were held in bondage. Uh, bondage, of course, is from the Greek doulos, slave, uh, bond, bond servant. But we're held in bondage to what? The elemental things of the world. That's kind of a tricky phrase, but, uh, and it can mean different things in different uh, contexts. Uh, the Greek word here, <laughs> found this interesting, the Greek word is stoicheion. Basic principle is what it really means. It represents something that is rank-ordered, 
uh, something sometimes like letters of the alphabet, if you will, uh, soldiers in military formation and rank order. It's rudimentary, simple, uncomplicated, kind of immature almost, childish in a sense, simple is what it uh, comes down to. Uh, stoichiometry is a, an area of chemistry that I know nothing about, uh, but uh, it has to do with the relationship of the basic building blocks of chemical elements. Uh, that term stoichiometry is derived from the same Greek word stoicheion. Uh, and if any of you chemistry, chemistry types want to explain to me what story, the finer points of stoichiometry, uh, feel free, but uh, just remember I'm going to smile and nod and not understand anything you're telling me. So, Anyway, the elemental things Paul is referring to here are the religious tr- traditions, the man-made uh, ideas from any source that are uh, put on religion without divine input. These are the things that people do to try to work their way to heaven, to earn their salvation. They seem simple, thus elementary principles, but these are the kinds of things the Judaizers were telling the Galatians they needed to do by keeping the Pharisaical supplements to the Mosaic law. Trying to keep the law, as we've seen earlier in Galatians, is impossible for us as humans to do. All it does is frustrate us, keep us enslaved, never free to please and glorify God through willing and loving obedience. This is legalism, pure and simple. Men's rules masquerading as the commands of God. The result is bondage, slavery. This is the status of all people apart from God, and was the status of most of the nation of Israel during the era of the Old Testament. We've seen, obviously, how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All the Old Testament saints, Abel, Noah, David, Noah, Moses, countless others, were saved the same way. They believed God and trusted him to save them, not their own ability to keep the law. But over the years, the Jewish religious leaders had so twisted the law, making unsupported interpretations to justify adding their rules and regulations, that the typical person would have been utterly confused and discouraged in their religious lives, hoping that their rule following would be enough. Of course, we know through the Old Testament that there were those who responded to the efficacious call of God, like Abraham, Moses, Noah, and David, people like Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, Simeon and Anna, who served in the temple in Jerusalem, and worshiped the newborn child, uh, newborn Christ. God will always draw his elect to himself, regardless of ethnicity, gender, location, time, or any other human characteristic we might use to divide ourselves. As we've already observed, verse 28 of chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our salvation through Christ should be our first and only identification. We belong to him. That which unites us is infinitely stronger than whatever divides us. Moving along to verse 4. This is great. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God had a plan. God has a plan. 
established before the foundation of the universe to bring glory to himself. The astonishing thing to me is that he chose us to be an integral part of his plan. God's omniscience, his infinite knowledge, his eternality beyond the limitations of time and space, his omnipotence, unlimited power, everything that makes God God should be the supreme object of our wonder, our worship, our greatest desire to glorify him in everything we do because he included us in his plan. The primary focus of God's eternal plan of redemption, of course, is the person of his only begotten son, the monogenes, Jesus Christ. Eternally one with the Father and the Spirit, eternally unique in his work and personhood. Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus willingly set aside some of his divine attributes in order to become a human being. He emptied himself. This is the theological doctrine of kenosis, the emptying, which sadly we don't have time to get into today, but is worthy of study. And there in Philippians 2, Christ's willing humility and submission to the Father's will is both a rebuke and an encouragement to each one of us to have the same attitude. Let this mind be in you, is what it says, is that Christ also had. But getting back to our verse, this happened, this coming of Christ happened at the exact right time in history, God's preordained moment, as it says in verse 4, the fullness of time. God's written history of the physical universe is contained in this single volume, the Bible. And it starts in Genesis 1 1. Of course, it starts well before that, in eternity past. But Genesis 1 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This supreme act of incomprehensible power, making the universe out of nothing, set in motion everything that led to the first advent of Christ, the fullness of time. When we consider everything that occurred prior to the incarnation of Christ, from Adam through Noah to Abraham, God's divine choice of the Jewish people to be the messengers of his redemptive plan, his preservation of Israel through Egyptian slavery, the Exodus, to the giving of the law, the occupation of the promised land, establishment of the, of the uh, Jewish monarchy, the repeated rejection of God by the children of Israel, the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, and the return to the land, even historical events not recorded in Scripture, like the, the conquests of Alexander the Great, which made Greek the common language throughout the known world, then the rise of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, enhancing and expediting travel and communication throughout the Mediterranean Sea area. In all of this, we see the hand of God directing the sovereignty of God in every step of the way. Some people, like secular historians, for example, may think it's just a sequence of coincidental events, happenstance, uh, one thing leads to another. But when we realize that the fullness of time included the religious, 
political, cultural readiness of mankind at that time, 2,000 years ago, the only reasonable conclusion we can come to is that God was integrally involved throughout all of it. Everything led to that moment when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Verse 4, born of a woman. He was born fully human with human weaknesses, tempted like as we are yet without sin, as we're told in Hebrews 4.15. We're also told that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born a Jew and was raised in the nurture and admonition of the Mosaic law. All Jewish people were obligated to obey the law, but Jesus, as we well know, is the only Jew and the only person who ever actually did keep the law. He was born under the law, and he kept the law. Verse 5 tells us why he came, why God sent him forth at the fullness of time. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The whole plan of God established in eternity past, was for our redemption and his glory. Those who were under the law, this is all mankind, not just the Jews. The Mosaic law was given to the Jews, but all people have a knowledge of God written on their hearts. Romans two fourteen and 15 tells us this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So this is the answer to those who would argue that the law was only for the nation of Israel. Yes, God chose the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the keepers and heralds of his law. But all people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are subject to the requirements of the law, and all people of every tug, tongue and tribe and nation are equally unable to obey it, to keep it. The only remedy for our helpless condition is the perfect Redeemer, God's only Son, Jesus Christ, sent to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. For the believer, this redemption is the beginning of our salvation experience, but God sees it, in a way, as the fulfillment of his plan. Having been efficaciously called, we are instantaneously justified, and in the sight of God, we're glorified at that time, as we've seen according to Romans, or Romans 8 and verse 30. He who sees all things beyond the limitations of time and space views us as wearing the righteousness of Christ, even now, perfect in him, even as he is perfect. Our adoption is complete, our inheritance secure. We have eternal life right now, and we can enjoy all the riches of him who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 and verse 10, verse ripped ruthlessly and unashamedly from its context. You can read uh, Psalm 50 later, but uh, we, sorry, rabbit trail. Uh, cattle on a thousand hills is a, an old a gospel song that uh, and God is rich. He owns everything. I think that's the message there. But we're heirs to that. So 
Psalm 50 isn't necessarily about that, but uh, you can read that for yourselves. Moving on, <clears throat> too late. Because you are sons, verse 6, verse 6 tells us of some of these riches, some of the privileges we have. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Uh, this is what we were studying a couple of weeks ago in our morning service in John 14, how Jesus promised his disciples that even though he was leaving them, he wouldn't leave them alone. He asked the Father to send the, help, the Helper, the Spirit, to dwell within them. We saw the initial fulfillment of all of this at Pentecost when the Spirit truly changed the lives of the disciples, who then went on to establish the church and turn the world upside down. We have that same Spirit living inside us. This is eternal security. We don't keep ourselves in Him. He keeps Himself in us. He wants to hear us say, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. He wants to have that intimacy. He wants us to have that contentment beyond anything we can experience in a human relationship. Any personal relationships we have with people on earth, even in our own families, because are, are going to have disappointments, no matter how much we love our families, our friends, because on this earth, we're kind of stuck in these sinful, fleshly bodies. And let's face it, sometimes even those closest to us on earth are going to let us down. But God, the immutable, unchanging, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, loving God, creator of the universe, will never disappoint, will never let us down, will never abandon us. We cry out to him when there's no one else we can turn to, and he is there to remind us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. This is what we enjoy as children of God, heirs through adoption. He chose us. And that's exactly what it tells us in, in verse 7, Galatians 4. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our status has been forever changed no longer slaves to sin, no longer doomed by our failure to keep the law, but set free from the burden of the law to be heirs through the gracious act of God. Now, Paul has a, <clears throat> has a really positive attitude here. He's excited. He's enthusiastic about the blessings that God's elect have. Excuse me. About the blessings God's elect have as heirs through adoption. He wants the Galatians to realize, to understand just how much they have been given and how much they have that they should be praising God for. But as we get to verse 8 through verse 11, it kind of goes back to his earlier theme. The Galatians have apparently forgotten everything they learned from Paul when he planted the churches there in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. First, we see in verse 8, however... Uh-oh. <laughs> However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. He reminds them. Before God got hold of them, before he regenerated and justified them, they were slaves. This is the condition of every human being born of Adam. We are all slaves to sin, to those which are by nature are no gods. That phrase, 
those which by nature are no gods, means exactly that. Anything that people set up as idols. Before Paul came and planted the churches there, the Galatians, uh, Galatian, the Gentile Galatians, would have worshipped the pantheon of the Greek or Roman gods, perhaps the pagan idols their ancestors brought from Gaul, worshipping nature or carved images. <laughs> Modern man might think that uh, they're superior to the ancients, much more advanced, but they worship idols just like mankind has done since Adam sinned. They worship their own intellect, their possessions, their achievements, anything that Satan holds up to distract us. So, we serve that which we worship. Anything we worship besides the thrice holy God is false worship, for he alone is worthy of worship, and he alone is the one we must serve. In verse 9, you can hear the deep concern Paul has for these believers. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Why are you abandoning the truth, abandoning the blessings that come with knowing God? That word in verse 9 for know, K-N-O-W, is gnosko in the Greek. Uh, there's a distinct contrast with the same word in the previous verse, Galatians 4, 8. says, when you did not know God. Uh, that word there in Greek is the word aido. You know, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but uh, there's a distinct difference. Aido means to have an intellectual awareness and acknowledgement of a fact, whereas gnosko signifies experiential knowledge. I like what Vine's expository dictionary says about gnosko. In the New Testament, gnosko frequently indicates a relation, b- relationship between the person knowing and the object known. In this respect, what is known is of value or importance to the one who knows, and hence the, relation, the establishment of the relationship. He goes on to say regarding verse 9 here in Galatians 4, To be known of God, here the knowing suggests approval and bears the meaning to be approved. Paul is telling Galatians, now look here you guys, you know God and he knows you with genuine affection and approval. You are saved individuals. You've been set free from the impossible demands of the law. So how is it that you're turning back to be enslaved again by useless traditions and demands? turning back. This takes us back to Galatians 1 and verse 6, where Paul first starts his rebuke of these people. Remember there he said, uh, Galatians 1, 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The word he used there, deserting, is a bit more severe than turning back, which he uses here. Deserting, that means a, a military surrender, a military desertion. But turning back here, as used in here, in verse, uh, uh, verse 9, turn back again, uh, is, means more of an uncertain turning around, as if they can't make up their minds. Reminds me of Elijah's question to the, to the children of Israel on Mount Carmel. As he's getting ready to challenge the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18.21. Uh, King James says, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long you, are you going to hesitate? Make up your minds. 
It's almost like the Galatian believers aren't sure who they should believe. Uh, are they going to believe what Paul, Paul told them? Are they going to believe what these Judaizers are saying? Paul's clearly concerned that they're being led astray by the false teachers and submitting themselves once again to the weak and worthless elemental things that he mentioned in verse 3. There, he simply identified them as elemental things, but here in verse 9, he characterizes them as weak and worthless, beggarly in the, in the King James. Weak, impotent, powerless, worthless, without value. All the efforts of man to work his way to heaven by following rules and traditions are doomed to failure. Verse 10 talks about some of these rules and traditions. You observe days and months and seasons and years. These are the rituals, the ceremonies, and the festivals that God ordained for the people of Israel in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law, but they were never commanded for the church. The Judaizers were teaching the Gentiles who wanted to be saved that they had to convert first to Judaism, had to become Jews, and follow all the Old Testament laws and instructions and Pharisaical traditions before they can become Christians, had to become Jews to become Christians. But it's probably safe to say that Paul had given the Galatian believers clear instructions regarding what they had to do to be saved and how they were no longer under the rule of the Mosaic law. It's classical legalism that these Judaizers were pushing, and it's insidious. We read God's word in which Jesus tells us to obey his commandments. And we say, yes, that's what I want to do. It's good and right for us to do so. But complications set in when we confuse the directions of men with the commandments of Christ. Some of these men might be good intentioned, at least to begin with. But any time we start adding to the word of God, we're grieving the spirit. We're reducing our effectiveness as witnesses. We get discouraged before you know it, we've lost the joy of our salvation. And that's what Paul got so worried about in verse 11. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now, Paul wasn't so much worried necessarily about having wasted his time. He knew that his preaching, the establishment of these churches, was God's, part of God's plan and what God wanted him to do. He knew these people were saved, but he was more concerned that the Galatians' testimony for Christ was being rendered ineffective. That by following the false teachings of the Judaizers, they would not achieve the level of maturity that in Christ that he was praying they would. So, in summary, Galatians 4, 1 through 11, Paul reminds the Galatians of what they, ha- what they have as children of God the inheritance that is theirs through adoption. He's telling them that what they have is theirs because of God's gracious gift. And they have the indwelling spirit to keep on reminding them that they don't have to obey the commands of men in order to maintain their salvation. We demonstrate to others that we are God's children through our obedience to him. We don't keep our salvation by following rules. We follow his rules to show that we love him. And to glorify him. Nothing else matters but God's glory.